honestly, I would like to see you folks try to make a list of five jurisdictions to talk about for a podcast where you're supposed to narrow that list of all the most difficult jurisdictions down to just five, just five. How do you even do that? Well, we tried this week here at Cross Border Solutions to narrow down such a list, and we came up with an episode explaining the five jurisdictions who we think are increasing scrutiny of transfer pricing transactions the most out of anywhere in the world. But that's just as of February 2021. And so much changes in transfer pricing. If you just listen to our short form sister podcast, the Fiona show hot off the press, you know, it's hard to decide because there's so much happening on the transfer pricing front. Italy just added additional burdens for MNEs with its new transfer pricing documentation requirements effective from fiscal year 2020. Rwanda has added new requirements, including not only requiring documentation of related party transactions, but also of deemed related party transactions, meaning where parties are not related, but a Rwanda taxpayer does business with another company in a jurisdiction with a beneficial tax regime. Not surprising, more audits are expected there. Vietnam has enacted new regulations effective from December 2020. The fourth time transfer pricing regulations have been replaced or revised since it introduced regulations in 2006, including country-by-country country reporting. The IMF announced that the Platform for Collaboration on Tax released the Practical Toolkit to support the successful implementation by developing countries of effective transfer pricing documentation requirements, which means that new transfer pricing regulations are likely coming out of developing countries. They surely could have made the list, considering that the Tax Justice Network recently announced that an estimated $500 billion in corporate taxes lost to tax havens every year. You can bet all tax authorities are on the lookout to recover revenue. There's also COVID. So ultimately, we across border had to pick and choose. And here's who we're watching this year. By the way, hello. I'm Matthew DeMello, host of The Fiona Show, Cross Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast, taking deep dives into serious subjects and headlines from around the world on transfer pricing regulations. As always, you can earn CPE credits for listening to this podcast. Here's how it works. We're planting three CPE code words throughout the course of this program. Send all three to The Fiona Show at xbs.ai. That's all one word. The Fiona Show at xbs.ai. And we will reply with your certificate. Now let's take a look at transfer pricing in the news. Reporting a loss is normal, especially in transfer pricing. Reporting a loss in court, that just downright stings. Swedish telecommunications titan Tele2 Treasury AB lost its most recent legal battle with the Swedish Lower Administrative Court. The issue at hand, exchange losses. Here's what you need to know. Between 2011 and 2015, Tele2 Treasury AB issued loans to its affiliate, Kazakhstan MTS. In September 2015, the loan currency was changed from U.S. dollars to Kazakh Tange, a considerably low-valued currency at the time. A month later, Tele2 and Kazakhstan MTS signed a new agreement. 
it denominated the loan in Tange and bumped up the interest rate from LIBOR plus 4.6% to a fixed 11.5%. Tele2 didn't miss a beat when it came to reporting losses. We're talking 745 million Tange or $89 million from September to October of 2015. The Swedish tax agency was the first to put the kibosh on this deduction of losses and ruled that the currency conversion losses didn't align with the arm's length principle. Tele2 appealed the ruling to high court and well, we know what happened there. The Swedish company also got slapped with a 40% tax penalty on unpaid taxes, ouch. For Tele2, the legal end is far from sight. It's already announced that it will appeal the decision. Stay tuned. Working from home just got a little easier for taxpayers, that is. The OECD has released an updated guidance to address the pandemic's effect on tax treaties. The takeaway, telework due to a public health measure imposed or recommended by the government does not create a fixed place of business permanent establishment. The guidance also addresses residency status of companies and employees, employment income, and tiebreaker rules for dual residents. While the guidance can't help with a screaming toddler during a meeting or remind you to put yourself on mute, it proves to be beneficial. The guidance provides clarity around measures and restrictions that were put in place back when the pandemic started. Rwanda is ramping up its transfer pricing regulations. The government published new rules in December 2020 involving related parties engaged in controlled transactions. While generally aligning with the 2017 OECD guidelines, the new rules widen the scope to include, quote, deemed controlled transactions, unquote. A deemed controlled transaction is a transaction between unrelated parties that is considered a controlled transaction because one of the participants resides in a country that Rwanda believes provides a beneficial tax regime. Here's what you need to know about the new rules. Transfer pricing documentation doesn't need to be prepared by taxpayers with annual turnover less than 600 million Rwandan francs or 605,143 US dollars and whose controlled transactions are less than 10 million Rwandan francs individually or aggregated 100 million francs, which comes out to 8,283 US dollars and 82,836 dollars respectively. And while the country's tax authority has no requirement to prepare a master or local file, it does mandate the preparation of documentation that illustrates that the conditions of controlled transactions are arm's length. A rose by any other name still smells as compliant. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University Weekly. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai slash tpu. 
Welcome back, everyone. I'm here with Chief Economist Mimi Sung joining us on The Fiona Show this week to talk about five jurisdictions we here at Cross Border feel are worth keeping an eye on throughout 2021. But first, Mimi, it's a snowy day in New York. What are three survival techniques you have learned over the course of pandemic? That's a good question. So I guess survival can be both internal and external, right? Right. So in terms of external survival, I think just figuring out how to avoid going outside. Instacart is our best friend, right? Everything gets delivered. Except can I tell you, my house is 26A versus 26. And so I'm constantly going to my neighbors to pick up my deliveries, but <laughs> neither here nor there, right? Um, right. I need a bigger, I need a bigger uh, house sign or something along those lines. <laughs> but I mean, I think another survival technique really being so close with the family all the time is how do we have good family time together, right? How do we make things a little bit more special as opposed to just constantly being around each other? Right. Board games. Board games have been amazing for us. Okay. And can I tell you, even in the very beginning, um, there are a couple board games related to the pandemic. It was, and one of them was called pandemic. Another one was called like rapid response and they were on sale. So we'll bought them <laughs> and They've been uh, very entertaining. <laughs> you know, they, they've been extremely entertaining. Adds an extra layer of meta when when you're playing the game version of the emergency that we're all going through. But <laughs> but unfortunately, we haven't won, so that's you know neither here nor there. It's just a game. So <laughs> as in the game, as in real life. Now, as far as survival techniques for MEs in, in the midst of pandemic, tax scrutiny, of course, is a major risk for MEs going forward. Uh, how are you seeing clients, anyone on your radar, responding to that tax scrutiny? So, I mean, I think historically, right, we, we've been talking to a lot of multinationals who perhaps had tabled transfer pricing, had tabled international tax scrutiny in terms of their top priorities, but all of a sudden that's starting to bubble up back up to the top now that, you know, they, they've been able to deal with some of the more urgent fires, like keeping on the lights and making some more strategic business descriptions, everything else has to fall into place. And so multinationals are now alert to the fact that many of them, their fiscal years just ended. They had to deal with year-end provisioning and things of that nature. And now they have to worry about the compliance aspects of it. And they're thinking, oh no, okay, here's, here's another fire I have to deal with now because most multinationals do understand that tax scrutiny increases. And I think we'll get into that over our discussion today, just about who's looking at what and, and how do we know that? Of course. And I think a great place to start specifically with who's looking at what is Denmark. I'll leave it to you for at least the description for why they make the list. But this has traditionally been a tough jurisdiction for MNEs. Oh, absolutely. I mean, they have one of the highest tax rates in the world, right? An individual tax rate can be half of your income. I mean, they have a lot of 
social taxes that are being applied. They have 25% VAT on purchases, 150% tax on cars. And we've always known that the Danish tax authority, which we will refer to as SCAT, they've always been aggressive. They were the first jurisdiction that I know of that applied a penalty just for not having documentation in place. Um, their tax authority has become much more sophisticated when it comes to transfer pricing. They've increased the number of examiners. I think over 100 new examiners have been added over the past 10 years. And the Danish tax authority actually was able to collect over 80 billion Danish krona from multinationals over that time. It's a pretty significant uptick. They even have proposals to incorporate what they call a tax evasion alarm center, which is like a whistleblower channel, right? It's, hey, report suspicious tax behavior here. <laughs> Who knows if they'll be able to provide a little benefit or a little prize for those reporting, but I wouldn't be surprised if that would be the case. Um, and they have a lot of analytical tools that are at their disposal. They do think that transfer pricing related issues are significant. It's, it's an area of focus and they are going to be proposing over a thousand new employees over the next four years. It's a lot of investment of time and effort there. As far as the tax evasion alarm center, that, that might even say something to our listeners just about the culture. You already need the culture in place of a, you know, see something, say something for that to work. I don't know. I don't know if you could <laughs> do that as easily in America and expect the, the, the same results. But what does all of this mean? Bottom line for M&Es? What, what, what are the changes in mentality that they need to make to address these challenges? I think it means you, first of all, you can't avoid the documentation requirements, right? Like as stated, right. Denmark has a penalty if they don't have documentation prepared. So clearly the burden of proof is on the taxpayer. And basically if the documentation isn't prepared, SCAT can make discretionary assessments. That's not unusual, but we know that it's, it's very specific to Danish standards, all right? And so that's that's really the challenge. They have very specific prescribed standards that they're looking for. At the end of last year, the Danish parliament actually passed a bill that requires taxpayers to submit the master file and local file effective for tax years beginning on January 1st, 2021. And that deadline is within 60 days after the tax return is filed. So they give you a little bit of cushion in terms of your documentation doesn't have to be contemporaneous with the tax return, but it has to be filed and prepared 60 days after you submit your tax return. And that's a change, that's a big change. All of a sudden, it's not a nice to have, it's you have to submit it. The actual content requirements, they do generally follow the OECD recommendations. So in terms of the content requirements for documentation, it hasn't dramatically shifted for what Denmark wanted to see pre-2021. But once again, I think the focus here is on the fact that you no longer just need to prepare the information and get penalized when you get audited. You actually have to submit it. You are required now to submit it 60 days after your tax return on an annual basis. Now, let's remind our listeners that the penalty could be 
upwards of 30,000 euros per year, right? It's actually 250,000 Danish krona, but depending on interest rate fluctuations, we can do the conversions. And then there's even additional penalties that are applied in case there are adjustments, right? Up to 10% of the adjustment amount could be penalized. And then on top of that, if you don't have your documentation, not only do you start off with a baseline penalty of 250,000 Danish krona, but then you get penalized every day until you submit it. It's not fun. Well, in speaking of this submission, how does that change the mindset for taxpayers in terms of preparing versus submitting? So historically, Denmark's one of those countries where the documentation is a must-have, or it should have been prepared contemporaneously. So perhaps the mindset from a taxpayer who has operations in Denmark, it goes from should-have to must-have. And I've always categorized it as a must-have anyway, but because you're physically having to submit that documentation it raises the level of awareness and it raises the requirement standards. I mean, think about your homework. If your teacher said, hey, Matthew, you have to do your homework by the end of this week. Okay, but I'm going to collect that homework next Tuesday. Or she may or may not collect it, right? There's still this question mark of, she just said it had to be done by Friday, but she may or may not collect it. That's going to change your mindset about whether or not you have to have it done by Friday. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> of course, of course. And once again, the, the classroom trickles in in our anecdotes mm. about transfer pricing. Just to sum up here, at least some bottom line mentalities that m can adopt, at least when it comes to their Danish transfer pricing documentation. More documentation requirements in Denmark now, more penalties. I feel a little bit like that MSNBC pundit who always like qu- quotes rappers, because now I sound a little bit like... Notorious B.I.G., more documentation requirements, more penalties, more problems. That's just it at the end of the day. More resources, more resource employees in the Danish tax authority now, more analytical tools for evaluating documentation and suspicious tax behavior. We know transfer pricing is a priority for what has already been a very aggressive tax authority. Mimi, what are some strategies m can employ to address these challenges? Well, I think first and foremost ensuring that you have documentation. And then then not only do you have it, but does it meet those Danish requirements? Is it robust enough to meet those localized standards? Or did you take a, a sort of haphazard approach to just meeting the contemporaneous requirements? Because now you have to be mindful of the fact that SCAT is going to be looking at this. And then not only that, but with their additional analytical tools, Could they be reading these documents using AI or machine language? I mean, that's not out of the question, right? And so given that, are there certain ways you want to put this together so that it it makes sense, so that it's not triggering any red flags? Do you have a robust functional analysis that really tells the story of where value is being created? Have you selected the most appropriate method? given your facts and circumstances. So these are all the things that you're going to have to reevaluate to make sure that your documentation aligns with the SCAT's requirements so that when you do submit it, it's not going to trigger an audit. One thing I, I do want to focus, right, is clearly the functional analysis 
it needs to be prepared to make sure not only is it telling the story about your business, but that it is telling it in a way that the reader can really understand what is driving value within the organization, right? So the functional analysis in and of itself may be the, the, the old way that a multinational put it together was focused on one entity versus the actual transaction. But remember, that functional analysis is going to dictate the type of method to be applied. And so it has to focus on the transaction. It has to make sure to delineate the different activities being performed by the two different parties as it pertains to that particular transaction. It has to stand up and be clearly understood and therefore help dictate the type of method to be applied, right? And so if you have a good functional analysis and then it helps determine and assess the applicability of each of the methods, then you can highlight which method should be applied given those facts and circumstances. And so you need to be very mindful of that if you're doing your documentation for Denmark. It goes above and beyond just what you might have had historically because someone's going to be reading it, right? And someone's going to be looking at it that closely and trying to determine whether or not it is it is sufficient enough to avoid potential adjustments. So that's what you need to be mindful of as multinational operating in Denmark. Of course, of course, a, a jurisdiction we're going to be keeping our eyes on throughout the year for sure. So to just give a brief synopsis here and mention Denmark, not only as one of the items that made our list, but also one of our CPE code words. That way you get them all in one package. Again, that's our first CPE code word. It is Denmark. The reason they make our list, they're combining transfer pricing with corporate audits. More companies are getting audited, effective for fiscal years beginning on or after April 1st, 2020. New regulations provide guidance on intangibles in align with OECD guidance on intangibles, including valuation. The discounted cash flow method is an acceptable method seen as reliable by tax authorities. Transfer pricing directives state that when the discounted cash flow method is one of multiple appropriate methods, the other method should be selected. So it's a possible revenue grab. The statute of limitation for transfer pricing is extended from six years to seven years. The NAT now has an additional year to review and propose adjustments. Expect to be scrutinized by tax authorities. Turning to our next jurisdiction on the list, that would be Japan. What puts Japan on the list? Well, so in 2016, Japan's NTA, they actually announced the International Taxation Total Plan. And according to the plan, that the tax authorities highlighted that they'll be conducting vigorous tax audits on cross-border transactions of multinationals, as well as high net worth individuals. And when we talked about Japan historically, right, in one of our previous episodes, I, I was explaining to you that the Japanese culturally, they are good corporate tax paying citizens. But that doesn't necessarily mean that all companies are Japanese parent companies or all MEs operating in Japan fall within that bucket, perhaps. But beyond that, the NTA is also focused on increasing its tax base as well as tax revenue, you know, because 
Japan's economy has its own challenges, right? I mean, it's it's been suffering from a deflationary environment for the past 20 years. So when we think about Japan over the over the past what five years or so? I think 2016, four for over four years, the amount of the adjustments, right, that they were able to identify for cross-border transactions had increased from 2.2 billion dollars in 2016 to over three billion dollars in 2017, and then even further to six billion in 2018. So if you see, put yourself in the anti issues. If you see that upward trend, right, of adjustments coming from cross-border transactions, clearly you're going to throw more resources at this because maybe there's even more that you're missing, or maybe there's some uh, additional activity that you're not able to scrutinize because you can't audit every single company. So the NTA basically said that the key issues that they're going to be focused on would be transfer pricing, donations to overseas enterprises, payments that are basically characterized as gratuitous payments or gifts and and shouldn't be deducted, and then controlled company rules. So those are the areas of focus in 2016. Now, Japan also, they were one of the countries that put audits on hold because of the pandemic. But then they resumed those audits in the middle of in the middle of all this, so sometime around October, and that was before it it came to a close and it were still ongoing. But they were very open about focusing on multinationals cross-border activities. And they want to be able to make sure they're applying their resources strategically because as said, you could see that increasing trend of revenue being identified as a result of these audits. And so they're already highlighting to operations locally, hey, if you don't want to get audited, start paying attention to your intercompany transactions because we're going to come, we're going to find the issues and we're going to challenge them, right? And and now transfer pricing audits are just par for the course with corporate tax audits. So essentially, if you're on the list to get audited through one of those natural corporate tax audit cycles, many Japanese companies are, they, they expect an audit every two years or so, you can expect to be audited for your transfer pricing. And that's just part of the regular functions. Is that something that you can just expect as a, as a Japanese taxpayer in, in that case the, the, for the corporate aud- yeah. audits? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think we remember at tax authorities when they audit companies, they're they're trying to go through a cycle and audit mm-hmm. every single company eventually, right? There's, it's they're, they're trying to cycle through all of them. But now transfer pricing audits are going to be par for the course with these corporate tax audits. More and more taxpayers are going to be subject to transfer pricing audits, which in turn could result in additional adjustments and increased tax revenues for Japan. One of the things I also wanted to highlight, Matt, basically the the NTA effective for fiscal years beginning after April 1st, 2020, because there are actually a lot of companies like MUFG Union Bank that had a fiscal year end of March 31. It's not statutory, but it's, it's, it is elective, but we do tend to see that for Japanese multinationals. The new guidelines, the new regulations actually provide additional guidance on intangibles. And, and, and they start to align more with the OECD guidelines on intangibles including valuations, right? And so one of the methods that companies can use to value intangibles is actually called the discounted cash flow method. 
And this has historically, right, had historically, I should say, been seen as unreliable by tax authorities, so the DCF method. But the TB directives by the NTA actually state that now they would deem the DCF method as one of multiple appropriate methods, right? And so you have to question the reliability here or exactly where, where the direction that the NTA is heading if out of one side of their mouth, they're saying the DCF is unreliable and out of the other side now as a directive, they're saying, oh, it's a reliable method. What is going to happen? Why are they talking out of both sides of their mouth? Are they setting taxpayers up for challenge? Are there other underlying motivations happening? That's that's the piece we have to be mindful of. And don't forget, they've also changed the statute of limitations for transfer pricing from six years to seven years. That's in line with a lot of other jurisdictions, so not a problem. But ultimately, it's an additional year that they can audit now. So <laughs> an additional year for them to go and audit, propose adjustments. So Japan is definitely on the list. And Mimi, what are some of the strategies M&Es can employ to address these challenges? Once again, I think we know transfer pricing audits are going to be inevitable, right? And so because of that, the level of documentation, the level of transfer pricing requirements, it should be prioritized higher and then than anything else. It shouldn't be a, a nice to have or should have. It really does become a must have because documentation requirements in Japan, they are contemporaneous requirements. And you, inevitably, if you're going to get audited, you're going to be scrutinized for your transfer pricing. And we know the NTA is focused on this vigorously, right? I mean, that's their choice of words. So making sure that you have the documentation to support your positions, but especially when you think about the intangibles, how have you as an organization valued your IP? How, did you use a discount cash flow method? If so, is it supportable? Is it going to be scrutinized by the NTA? Have you selected the appropriate discount rate to be applied in the DCF model? Is that supportable? A lot of times it's the inputs that are challenged as opposed to just the output. So the various inputs like the discount rate being applied is going to have an impact to the, the value of the IP in, term, you know, in terms of how you're applying that model. Being focused on that is really important, being able to have a supportable position, and just the knowledge of understanding that the NTA is aggressively seeing transfer pricing revenue as a way to increase their tax revenue should already put you on the edge of your seat to make sure that you are in a position so that you're multinational. You should expect that the NTA is going to be looking at your transfer pricing policies and your frameworks and have all the evidence and the support in accordance with their local rules and guidelines. And like your homework, you want to hand that in on time. Just just bottom line, uh, yes, as we all learned exactly in school. Right. Yes. And before we break for a message from my friends and yours at Cross Border Solutions, our second CPE code word is Japan. Again, our second CPE code word is Japan. 
A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd. Which brings us to our next jurisdiction, which is the United Kingdom. I would say many recent events and institutions being founded at least to increase tax scrutiny that lead to this. But tell us, Mimi, why did the UK make the XBS list? Well, so the UK, I mean, there, there's there been a lot happening in the UK. They, they had their whole diverted profit tax introduced in 2015. They were, they were also at one point you know, going to implement additional mandatory disclosure requirements. Now that's recently changed. They basically taken the OECD framework and applied their own nuances to it, but they've always been concerned about which multinationals are not paying their fair share of taxes. Right? And so this has not been a surprise to say that the UK has been focused on transfer pricing, but we also know that they're even taking it a little a step further. We understand that HMRC has relaunched a campaign on multinationals that they suspect are unfairly and wrongly reducing the UK tax bills and shifting profit outside of the UK. And they're taking a more criminal approach to it. It's going beyond just, hey, taking advantage of tax arbitrage opportunities, but to say that they're doing it egregiously and they're doing it against their laws, right? They, eh. <laughs> that they're they're that they're doing it, you know, in such a manipulative manner as to avoid the payment of taxes. So, yeah, the HMRC themselves they've estimated that two thousand largest businesses with operations in the UK could owe an additional get this number thirty four point eight billion. British pounds in tax wow. related to just two years. That's, That's significant, right? Yeah. I mean, as over $30 billion of potential tax losses. So why wouldn't they put more resources toward this effort if that's what they're estimating it at? That's their market size. What we're seeing is, is HMRC said that of that $34 billion of unpaid taxes, over $10 billion was specifically related to transfer pricing. That's uh, an area for them to focus on. So HMRC has basically come out of the gate, said multinationals, you need to be on alert. I'm putting mm -hmm. you on, on notice that we are going to be auditing your operations. We're going to be auditing your cross-border transactions, your transfer pricing, your transfer pricing policies. 
we are going to be reviewing all of your transfer pricing arrangements. They had suspended audits during COVID as many countries and jurisdictions did, but then they relaunched them back in September. And then they've asked multinationals basically, I don't know if asked is the right word, maybe they've demanded right, <laughs> that, that multinationals review all of their transfer pricing arrangement and ask them to send them a letter. To, right. to tell them, hey, our transfer pricing was appropriate. <laughs> and I'm not, <laughs> so it, it, it really has focused on this area significantly. And then the HMRC basically indicated that in their investigations that they have identified that UK profits don't reflect the actual value created in the UK. They've used words like careless and deliberate behavior requiring penalties. They really want to make an example of these multinationals, I think. And then that's really what they seem to be set out to do. So with the profit diversion compliance facility, right, this whole transfer pricing disclosure tool that the HMRC has initiated, they've basically given notice to multinationals. They sent a bunch of letters out to target multinational companies who they basically have told, we've done our research. We think that you're not paying your fair share of taxes in the UK. We think you are diverting your profit to low tax jurisdictions. And we are coming after you. I basically, it's sort of a warning letter, right, Matt? Right, right. And, and in this warning letter, it's notifying MNEs that you need to send us additional information. You need to send us this additional information. And here, we're giving you a little bit of an olive branch because we know you're doing wrong. But if you want to tell us what you're doing wrong and how much you're doing wrong, we'll cut you a little break. So it's, it's, it's an opportunity to self-assess, identify your own transfer pricing issues in order to mitigate how much penalties and or adjustments the UK themselves or the HMRC themselves would potentially identify. So it, it does show that there's this heightened sense of focus. And for multinationals receiving this letter, it puts them on edge to think, oh my gosh, okay, what do they have on me? Is everything right? And then they're going to have to reevaluate the appropriateness of all of their transfer pricing related issues. That's right. I feel like there's another homework anecdote we could put in. Uh, maybe they, maybe the teacher has the homework and the student doesn't remember what's in the homework. No, I'm kidding. Uh, but in, even in the best of times, the HMRC is aware and focused on, on profit shifting by M&Es. We should note, but even if that, that scrutiny seems heightened at this point, but COVID deficits definitely added to this. They're tracking what they believe is missing income. They're setting up profits diversions tax to encourage M&Es to, to self-censor. And there's no denying the focus on transfer pricing compliance now, of course. But what does this mean for multinationals going forward in terms of just the realities they've got to accept about operating in the UK? I think the biggest challenge is that you are ultimately guilty until you're proven innocent. You know, it's, it's sort of this idea of... Yeah. Hey, multinationals, we know you're doing this. So just fess up and tell us what, you know, what it is that you're doing and, and we'll take it easy on you. So you really need to focus on making sure that your transfer pricing arrangements are, uh, are considered arm's length in accordance with the HMRC's perspective and, and, and mitigate the challenges that they're potentially going to be 
seeking. Of course. And what are some strategies MEs can employ or what are some best practices MEs can employ to address those challenges? So intercompany agreements, policy documents, make sure that everything is consistent, it's aligned, make sure that all of your all of your documentation requirements meet the local preferences so you don't necessarily have to worry about if you're ticking off all the boxes because HMRC is pretty specific in terms of what they're looking for. You need to make sure you have separate transfer pricing reports for all of the entities. Now, here's where it gets interesting because, you know, sometimes you might have a multinational may just have a country-specific report, but based on our experience, we know that, you know, multinationals who have been audited in the UK, they do realize that having separate legal entity reports in the UK is actually better and more important. Other things to note, the UK will challenge the use of, of COP data, right? The comparable and controlled price method. They'll want to look at that specifically. They'll want to they'll want to challenge the applicability of COP data because it's easy to challenge COP data given the high level of comparability required. So they're going to want to look at that. They're going to want local comparables. We know this. And there's actually a, a sufficient amount of data on, on UK companies. So I think it's called Companies House or something along those lines, where it's the local UK registry for all companies operating there. And they're going to make sure that when they come and audit you, your documentation is prepared contemporaneously. So they're going to want you to hand over your analysis within the 30 days that they allot for you. because. To be honest, the UK's tax return filing timeline is 12 months after the fiscal year end. They're, they're one of those jurisdictions that give you the longest period of time. So not having your documentation within a year of, of the fiscal year end close is not acceptable to them. Allowing all of that time to hand in homework, you're going to get the F if you really don't make that really generous deadline. Yeah, it's a very generous deadline. It's basically just have your, all your homework done before the end of the school year. That's that's what, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, basically what's happening here. Just know that the selection of your method has to be supportable, right? Because your method is going to be potentially challenged under audit is that's the easiest way to figure out whether or not there's an adjustable amount by changing the method. Hey, you applied a cup method. What happens if I apply a CPM? Oh, it means you owe more taxes in the UK. Well, then how come that's not a method that you chose to apply? This method is no good. So just <laughs> having a certain level of awareness in terms of the various methods that are applicable, I think will just put you in a better position. And make a world of difference, of That's course. Right. Turning to our next jurisdiction, a very obscure one, the United States of America. I was really going to try to ram home a joke there about the obscurity of this jurisdiction, but I just can't. I think if we needed at least two reasons that the U.S. would make our list, it's the recent cases we've seen involving Coca-Cola in Whirlpool. But Mimi, tell us, why did the U.S. make the list? So, yes, because they have some pretty landmark cases that they recently won. And I'll, I'll be honest, it's not often that they win, especially when it comes to transfer pricing related issues. I would say over the past 20 years, there are some key cases that were ruled against the IRS. And yet 
most recently, they won the Coca-Cola case where Coca-Cola now owes an, an additional $3.3 billion in taxes every year for a period of three years, actually. So in total, you're talking about over a $9 billion adjustment. It's significant. And the case in and of itself is important because Coca-Cola's arguments were historically based on the outcome of their IRS audit back in 1996. So Coca-Cola said, hey, IRS, you can't challenge us because you already did and you agreed on this back in 1996, right? Just to give a little bit of context here. What Coca-Cola was being challenged because of the royalties being applied for certain IP related to its secret formulation, the, the whole entire supply chain between the bottler and the owner of the formula is being challenged. There was too much profit being retained in those foreign jurisdictions where the activities were considered routine. Those were the bottling companies, and, and, and because they were considered routine, the tax authority or the U.S. or IRS basically said, well, that doesn't really make sense. Why is it that the entities that are performing their routine functions are the most profitable within the context of the entire value chain? And so the focus on the value chain is that much more important these days. And the IRS challenged the assertion against Coca-Cola to say that this doesn't make sense. Profit is not being earned in the jurisdiction where that value is being created. And then a lot of the value with respect to Coca-Cola is in the formulation, it's in the secret sauce. Turning to the next case and the rarity of the IRS winning these court cases, another major case was Whirlpool. And what does this tell us about the challenges facing M&Es when it comes to the United States as a tax jurisdiction in transfer pricing? So the IRS with the Whirlpool case, we know that they're basically, they're on a roll now. They're challenging this arrangement that Whirlpool created where ultimately the sales were generated through its Luxembourg affiliate. And so right now, Luxembourg is considered a, a tax haven. What's happening is the Mexico Maquiadora was manufacturing goods, which then sold to the Luxembourg affiliate. And now all of that profit associated through the generation of the sale of these appliances were being quote unquote taxed in Luxembourg. But the IRS was asserting that ultimately this structure was diverting those profits and taxes away from the U.S. and they should have been rightfully taxed in the U.S. And this is one of those cases we know, right? Many jurisdictions out there are focusing on tax havens and intercompany structures that insert tax havens into the, the whole structure in order to take advantage of the lower tax jurisdictions, right? And the, the Tax Justice Network had recently announced that an estimated $500 billion in corporate tax, $500 billion is lost to tax havens every year. And we know that tax havens are an area of focus for many many jurisdictions out there because it is a way for multinationals to set up structures to really divert profits away from, you know, high tax jurisdictions like the U.S. So the IRS won a transfer pricing case over intangibles as we went over with Coca-Cola. We can 
expect more scrutiny of intangibles. I will just say with my background in global policy, a conversation about tax havens writ large in America is long, long overdue inside out of transfer pricing in corporate tax law. We're going to see more cases, more investigations vis-a-vis Coca-Cola and Whirlpool. Whirlpool is based on a foreign-based company sales income or FBCSI on tangible goods appliances. Uh, Both cases show that multinational companies are employing questionable strategies that mean less money for the IRS. So if you are the IRS, you're thinking, who else might be doing the same thing? Uh, Mimi, what does this mean for M&Es? Well, I I mean, I think M&Es need to be worried now. The IRS has a couple of wins under its belt, and now they know exactly what they need to do to target other multinationals operating under similar structures. Um, and perhaps, you know, MNEs who had historically been relying on outdated structures that no longer were representative of value creation. Those are areas that the IRS can target now. With the Whirlpool win, for example, there are lots of multinationals potentially that have a Luxembourg affiliate. Whether or not they're operating in a similar capacity has yet to be determined. However, with the information that the IRS has, they can target those companies now. They can audit those companies and focus on that and say, oh, you have a Whirlpool structure. I'm going to come after you, right? CBC reporting alone gives them uh, visibility into this. Oh, they have a Luxembourg entity right. and a Mexico maquiadora. Let's go look at that, right? right? right. So, you know, that that income is now taxable under subpart F. So, so it gives them uh, a lot of wind under their wings, if that's the right expression, to be able to find the right multinationals that they're going to be able to target and and actually come out with a fruitful adjustment. I don't know if that was the right expression, but that is one of my favorite Bette Midler songs. So I, yes, I will accept right. that. Now, what are some strategies that m can employ to best address these challenges? Let's take the Coca-Cola case, for example. If you have foreign offices with routine functions or functions that would be considered routine, be mindful of that and understand what piece of that, you know, system profit is being retained by that routine entity, because that's going to be an area of concern. And Coca-Cola is clearly an example of that. So if you have that sort of framework, make sure that you can articulate and explain what piece of the system profit is being retained by the routine entity and and so that you're not triggering a red flag in that situation. And I think Jennifer Best at the IRS, she said, she, she talked about, you know, sometimes they get documentation with just a list of facts and factors that describe the business description, but it's not a real analysis. And I think that's a pretty telling statement because what the IRS is saying as part of their FAQs or, or best practices, right, that they had given out, she wants taxpayers to take that list of facts and circumstances to the next level and make sure that companies are giving a robust analysis of how their company's facts and circumstances compare to the legislative framework and why it would be determined that those intercompany practices would be considered arm's length. It's not just a list. It, it is a true analysis that you need to be focused on. And then in addition to that, you, you clearly have to make sure you're explaining what sort of method you're being applied. Do the outcomes actually make sense? Are you 
perhaps operating in a, under a similar structure like Coca-Cola or like Whirlpool that you could easily be challenged? Because if you are, you may want to take a closer look at making some uh, adjustments accordingly. Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing, software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with cross-border solutions, AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You you know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of cross-border solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp. That's xbs.ai slash tp. On to the next jurisdiction on our list. It is Thailand. Mimi, what puts Thailand on the XBS list? Well, over the last few years, Thailand has actually been focused on, on transfer pricing. They've passed, you know, transfer pricing specific legislation. And, and we know that there are many multinationals that have manufacturing and distribution hubs in Thailand. So after January of 2019, Thailand actually, they're not an OECD country, but they wanted to be part of the OECD inclusive framework. And so as part of those, those minimum standards, clearly they had to codify the arm's length principle into their particular revenue code. They've also gone beyond just the minimum standards. They've been able to impart powers to their local tax authorities, right? Their officers to be able to impart transfer pricing adjustments that arise from what they deem to be non-arm's length transactions. They've included mandatory documentation requirements as well as a new transfer pricing disclosure form. So they've done a lot here to focus on transfer pricing as an area for them to target. And we know that in 2020, their rules continue to evolve, and they've also now issued additional rules for country-by-country country reporting. Even in November, they issued new regulations that provided their tax officers with guidance on how they should be looking at internal and external comparables, which is better aligned with the OECD transfer pricing guidelines now. But it does go to show you that there's a focus on education so that the tax officers understand what it is that they're looking for and what they should be looking for. And I think that there's still an outstanding question of whether or not foreign comparable benchmarks would be acceptable because Thailand is one of those jurisdictions that we know they have a preference for local comparables, right? And, and, and we've talked about this before, but we see this a lot in those emerging market jurisdictions that want to see comparables 
operating in their particular jurisdiction or local comps, right? And, and I think a lot of that has to do with clearly geographic market comparability, number one, but also just lack of availability of information outside too, right? So anyways, the disclosure form I think is important right now. You have to have the disclosure form for your fiscal year ended December 31, 2019. And then that was recently extended because of that pandemic, but expect to see that that continues to be a requirement on an annual basis for entities operating in Thailand. Absolutely. And, and just to summarize for our audience in terms of, of recent uh, events in Thailand, new regulations, many subsidiaries operate in Thailand as low risk or routine businesses. They perform routine functions and assume routine risks. The Thai Revenue Department may expect a reasonable return on a year on year basis for such companies. Uh, a new disclosure form is now in effect that we just described. Uh, the Revenue Department will now have significant data about taxpayers related party dealings in Thailand that data will be used to analyze and formulate next steps for determining the selection of taxpayers for transfer pricing audits there's a new ruling to guide Thai tax officers about audits and what do you think the Thai revenue office is planning from there Mimi what does this mean so Matthew I mean I think in Thailand you have to be mindful that the tax authorities are are now focused on transfer pricing and they're empowered to make assessments or transfer pricing adjustments based on the guidelines as outlined in the OECD they actually they focus on creating a whole list of guidance related to market price transactions between related parties it, it similars, it, it's very similar to the OECD guideline framework, but that goes to show you that they are empowering and educating their tax officers to be able to look at taxpayers through the right lens with the right information. They are going to consider comparability of information that should be reported starting in 2020. They're going to look at that in more detail because they feel like the disclosure form in and of itself has not been enough information to focus their audits accordingly. And so now that they've initiated these original requirements, they've realized, hey, we this is an area for us to really focus on. And this is an area that now we, we understand a little bit more. I think we need some more information in order to better target multinationals. So it, it means a lot more focus from the Thai tax authorities. Right. And what are some strategies MEs can employ to address these challenges? I think a lot of companies in Thailand, and, and I touched upon this earlier, right? Because you see a lot of manufacturing and distribution operations in Thailand, they have been impacted by the pandemic. And so part of the way that MEs need to address the risk in Thailand is making sure that they have the appropriate level of documentation to demonstrate how the pandemic has impacted their their business, right? Was profit reduced or were their losses incurred because of the lack of utilization of their capacity? Was it lowered market demand? Were there exceptional fixed costs that they had to deal with? And so multinationals need to be mindful of describing the market situations that impacted their business. And they have to make sure to provide enough information so that tax authorities are not going to come back 
for more, right? I, I, I tend to feel that if you provide a sufficient level of information the first time and, and they don't come back, that's usually a, a good thing, you know? <laughs> so, and then in these emerging market jurisdictions like Thailand, they do have an affinity towards the comparable uncontrolled price method. So it, to the extent that there are, are any cups available to be examined for purposes of the intercompany pricing, start with those first and make sure that if that is not the method of choice, if that's not the primary method that demonstrates arm's length pricing, make sure you address that head on and that you explain so that the Thai tax authority doesn't lean into that and say the cup method should be the best method and then apply an adjustment, right? So you're going to have to just be prepared that they could challenge the selection of method. And it's just about being proactive about that potential challenge. One last question, Mimi, because I think we've done all the rapid fire rounds we can and we have all of your career advice uh, logged into previous episodes. But one last question, no doubt many of your clients are are listening to this episode. Uh, What do you want to say to them about the current transfer pricing environment? It's interesting because I I think who knew transfer pricing would be as amazing as it is today and fascinating as it is today. I mean, I, I, I always stayed in transfer pricing because I got to learn a lot about different businesses. But now that transfer pricing rules and regulations are evolving, many more tax authorities are becoming educated and and focused on transfer pricing scrutiny. You know, the, the idea here is that transfer pricing as a specialization is becoming more and more important. And for, you know, for my customers and for my clients that are listening to this, transfer pricing education as it pertains to your particular organization is going to be important. So you want to make sure that you know enough to be dangerous. You don't have to become an expert and know about every jurisdiction, but I think at least uh, an awareness and staying on top of the requirements and almost treating every jurisdiction like with the same level of, of, of scrutiny, I think is important because you want to take that holistic view. You don't want to just focus on the jurisdictions that are high risk only because eventually everyone's going to be on this bandwagon, right? Every country is going to be high risk and and every country is going to make it mandatory to file the documentation. I think that's the way that we seem to be going. So, Yes, especially just tracing uh, country by country report requirements and seeing where where that's going that alone of course so many other factors as well point in that direction but looking at that alone i i I think really sets the table for where this is all going mimi thank you so much again for joining us on the fiona show this week to talk about these jurisdictions yes thank you so much always a pleasure matt And we're going to make that our third and final CPE code word. And that code word is thank, is in thank you to everyone tuning in at home. Again, that's our third and final CPE code word. It is thank, is in thank you. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. While you're there, don't forget to check out our short form news podcast. That's the Fiona Show, hot off the press with all of your transfer pricing reg changes from all across the world in under 10 minutes. My name's Matthew DeMello, and they let me host, edit, and engineer this podcast. Christy Clements is our associate producer. Mary Lynn Mitchum-Strom 
is our executive producer. Until next week, folks, stay safe and wear a mask. We'll catch you then. 